One thing I will say too is a lot of times investors place a huge emphasis on the metrics. And while that's important, and I totally agree, I also think it's very important to actually look at the operators. Who is operating? What's their track record? Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today, we have the pleasure to talk to Beth Underhill. Beth is CEO at Lifestyle Equity. She has done a lot of different things and she has her hands in a lot of different things, just like me. So that's perfect combination. And I think the problem now is going to be how do we talk sensibly and not on top of each other for the next 40 minutes, 20 minutes, however long the episode is. I told Beth we're going to end in 40 minutes or we'll try to end in 20 minutes, but you know me. Chances are we'll end up talking to like 40 anyway. So I've set the right expectations. So Beth, with that, thank you again for coming on the show. We're super excited to have you here. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Beth, before we launch into your introduction, why don't we start with when you hear the term migrate to wealth, what does that mean to you? To me, says that you are actually going towards migration. When I think of migration, I think of birds migrating from the north to the south. To me, that means that you are migrating to to just more opulence, more more riches, more prosperity, and not necessarily from a financial perspective in terms of money in your pocket, but also mindset, heart, soul, all of it. Love that. You should. I think you should be a spokesperson for our show. You're better. You're better than me <laughs> in describing what my great wealth means. So that's awesome. Well, thank you again, Beth. But let's talk about your journey into wealth and start from what wealth meant to you when you started thinking about wealth, right? And then let's paint us a picture on how did you, what trajectory did you take? And then when you reflect today, how has that definition changed? It has evolved or not? Perfectly. I think there's no right answer because it's your answer. It's your story. So help us paint that picture. Absolutely. So my journey, my journey really started as I watched my father who was an entrepreneur. And that is what I always knew to be really the way to, the way to go. That for me, a corporate job, nine to five, I, I could never wrap my head around it. And probably because I wasn't very good at taking direction from other people. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> However, <laughs> I, I maybe just had different ideas of how things could be accomplished. And I always felt like they were falling on deaf ears. Interestingly enough, I, I had my first experience running a the catering operation for a boutique hotel in Finley, Ohio, and this was back in the early 90s. I was given free reign by the general manager to do whatever I felt necessary for this particular operation. And eventually, he also allowed me to, to run the hotel, generally speaking, during the evenings when he was gone and the weekends, because I was there all the time for any catering operations that were any events and so forth that were going on. So it was at that point that I really started wrapping my head around this concept of being my own boss, being in business for myself, understanding that that is where where I could attain wealth. Now, I used to think that wealth was dollar signs and felt that or thought that for a very long time. When I met my husband in the late 90s, he and I both decided that we wanted to start an outdoor living space construction company. It, it originated as a landscaping company. And then we we slowly but surely kind of moved it to more of this outdoor construction space as we started to see that outdoor living spaces were becoming largely popular in the early 2000s. And we, we based our business off of that. And, you know, money was flowing and it was, it was awesome, but I didn't really have a good grasp what to do with the money. 
and and how to handle the money. And so, you know, we, we ended up in, like a lot of other people in 2008, in a difficult financial position with the crash. We had a lot of high-end clients who decided to pull out their contracts from underneath simply because they were concerned about what was going on. And that really hurt our business significantly. Right. So for us, we had to pivot and we had to, you know, start to really almost start over essentially, which was fine. You know, we're very, with that entrepreneurial spirit that we have and just we're hard workers, it was okay to do that. But as I started then building other businesses, such as a a catering business and a golf business, and then a fitness studio, I really started to then understand that, you know, wealth comes from multiple streams and that you also have to be ready to receive that wealth that is coming at you. And that I mean by in your in your head, your heart, like I said earlier, when I talked about migrate to wealth. And that's been something that honestly, for the last three years, I have been working so hard at at is understanding that I can I can receive all of this, I'm deserving of it. And that, you know, when it when it does come to me, I'm going to make the right decisions and and do with it, you know, things that the universe is going to reward me for, such as, you know, giving back, you know, I'm I've always been a giver, but understanding that, you know, when you give your money to others to help just what that means, not only just for them, but also how that comes back to you. So that's a little bit about I guess, long and short, my journey and and how that how I've changed in terms of, you know, going from dollars and cents to more what's in my heart and and how I receive it and how I view it. That's perfect. And Beth, where do you see this going for future? Do you see this wealth definition as you think about it evolve, getting evolved, more evolved? Where do you where do you see that going? I, I think it's it will definitely evolve. I mean, there's there's always room for growth, right? Every single day. I, I, I want to grow in some way. And I think, you know, not every day is the perfect day. There are days that are better and there are days that are just, and I think, you know, trying to get to more of those positive days, the ones that, you know, where things seem to be going well, most of the time is, is what I'm actually striving for and understanding that, you know, when I do have setbacks, you know, being in the right mindset to position myself to deal with those setbacks and be able to overcome them quicker, easier, and then to move on from them. A lot of times, you know, we tend to dwell on setbacks or or negativity and learning to just kind of move past that sooner rather than later can actually just be, you know, the difference maker for just what what you can expect then in the, the weeks or the months to come. So yeah, so Beth, that's what um, I hope to have happen. Hopefully it does. And I'm pretty pretty sure it will because where you put the intention, that's where the energy goes, right? So, so if the intention is already there, so I'm pretty confident that'll happen. But but we, we were talking about, you mentioned about 2008, right? And and one could argue we're in those tumultuous times right now. Now the impact may be different. Mm-hmm. The severity may be different. Nobody knows that until that happens. We're definitely not, not, we're not in it yet. We're seeing the glimpse of it, right? So as you reflect on sure. that time, what's, what are some of the lessons learned from that time that you'll be able to use that you believe in your investing journey, in your own wealth creation, in wealth creation for your investors? How are you thinking about it? Well, I'll be honest with you. My husband and I, you know, we, we often look back at that time and not to dwell on it, but to take the lessons from that and and apply that to now so that we're not in that same situation again for ourselves, for our family. For us, we have created multiple streams of income so that we're not solely reliant on one. And that was that was the thing that that we made the mistake, you know, back in 2008 is to be solely reliant on our outdoor living space business. Now we mm-hmm. no longer have employees. 
So we just deal with subcontractors. So not having a payroll makes a significant difference. We don't have any debt. Whereas before we were highly leveraged. We had a building, we had bobcats, we had trucks, we had, you know, tons of equipment. And and so all of that, you know, when you think of, you know, the payments that you need to make becomes very daunting. You know, that number for us is is nominal compared to what it used to be. We only have one piece of equipment now, which makes a huge difference for that business. But other ways that we've pivoted is, or, or are, I should say, you know, we're involved with a couple of direct sales companies. We also, of course, that is one of the reasons why I went from fixing and flipping single family homes to pivoting into commercial real estate so that we could create passive income. And of course, you know, we are, we are, investors and, and and just like the investors that we pull into our deals, you know, we look at deals very closely and we like to see conservative underwriting. We like to see risk mitigation. And, and these things are all very important, especially as we enter into some very uncertain times. So as, as we are doing our due diligence on investments ourselves, you know, we're making sure that not only we're mitigating the risk and we're you know, investing wisely, but, you know, then we feel more comfortable actually presenting these deals to our investor base, the people that we know, because if we get them involved, we don't want the same thing happening to them. Whereas, you know, maybe there's a capital call or, or, no distributions or they're not getting seeing the returns and so forth. So yeah, lots to take away from. We we run our lives very different than what we used to and and we feel we feel much better about it. As you're reflecting on different asset classes, are there asset classes that you were bullish on a few years ago that you've changed your perspective on? And then second question really is a follow up question which is similar. I think it's gonna come out is what asset classes are you bullish on? Sure, absolutely. You know, when I first pivoted into commercial, multifamily was was the buzzword or buzzwords, I should say. Multi, that's, that's all I heard. That's all, you know, if I were sourcing deals, if I were looking at deals, it was multifamily, multifamily, multifamily. Then I was introduced to a group who I am actually part owner of this particular group. We had a pipeline of investment opportunities coming to us that that are student housing. And I have pivoted from multifamily, from being bullish on multifamily to actually being more bullish on student housing. Mm -hmm. And in particular, student housing that are in like your top tier markets where the schools themselves are not experiencing the decline that some of your smaller schools have experienced post-COVID, but the schools that maybe, for instance, the University of Georgia and their football program is has been very dominant the last few years. And that's a huge draw for students to want to go to the University of Georgia. Same thing would be true of, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, so I'm a Buckeyes fan. Same thing would be true of Ohio State. You don't see that enrollment declining necessarily. And as a result, the, the properties that we buy in and around these areas, they're 100% occupied. And right. we're leasing them up again to be 100% occupied for the next school year. So those are the types of things that, you know, that, that I'm looking for right now that I'm excited about. A lot of investors don't necessarily understand student housing. So many misconceptions out there. Most people tend to think that you only have a lease for the academic year and it's yeah. not an actual 12 month lease, but it really is. When you have the parents actually signing on the dotted line, their social security number, it's their credit at risk versus a tenant who might actually lose their job. That's a big difference, right? So if mom and dad are backing it up, chances are they're going to be able to pay pay for that lease for the full 12 months versus if maybe one of your renters with a multifamily property, maybe they, you know, where yeah. whoever they're working for just, you know, downsized and, and they were let go and, and it's going to be harder for them to actually make ends meet. So 
yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now as far as asset classes. No, I love that because I think uh, student housing has, like any other asset class, it all depends on where you're looking at things right? and how you're looking at things. Even multifamily mm-hmm. now has the opportunity. It just depends on where you're looking at it and how you're looking at the deals. Uh, it may not be as lucrative as right. five years ago, but there's going to be deals to be found. And the asset class is still pretty strong. Just the way we look at things now have completely shifted. So when we look at student housing, since we brought that up, uh, here, Beth. One of the biggest challenges with the student housing for for my own investors, even for me, is always been parties. Right? That that's the biggest risk mm-hmm. that we all see. That hey, you know what? This is going to be so much damage because we all have been teenagers. We know how it goes. Post teenagers, sure. I should say. So the the hormones are running pretty strong. Things are going crazy. It's the first time you've tasted the freedom. All of that stuff that goes around. How do you, when as we're talking about student housing, how do you make peace with that? Well, it's it's funny that you bring that up because when I first start. When I always talk to an investor about student housing, one of the first things I mention is, you know, I'm sure that your vision of student housing is something like Animal House. If you remember that movie back in the, I think it was the 80s or some, you know, where, you know, this, this fraternity house is completely, completely trashed with, I mean, beer cans everywhere. I mean, you name it, right? Parties all the time. However, we are buying class A student housing properties. So these are newer assets. The the students that are, I don't want to say there's a different caliber of student because that's not quite what it is, but I think they look at the asset themselves differently simply because of the fact that this is newer. And and, and, and you'd be surprised at what these these units look like. I mean, for instance, we have one student housing property. It is 26 cottage homes. And in each of those cottage homes, there's either four, five, or six bedrooms. Each of the each of the students have their own bedroom. They have mm. their own bathroom. And then on the first floor, there's the common area where you have a full kitchen, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, oh, wow. really nice furniture. So so they're living, they're living it up. I mean, it's almost like I mean, it is a second home, essentially. Yeah. And for some yeah. kids, who knows? This might be actually nicer than than their their own home. I have no idea. It's it's hard to say. But uh, another property that we have, there's four studio apartments that are all joined together by a common area. And in those studio apartments, there's a small kitchenette. They have their own bathroom. They have their own bedroom. But then they have the common area where there's a washer and dryer. There's a full kitchen. There's a dining area, a living area. So you're talking about some pretty deluxe accommodations. And I think when the students see those, and especially if parents are helping to move them in, you know, they're probably getting the side eye from their parents like, you better not (laughs) destroy this place. Um, You know, so, so I think sometimes it depends on the type of of asset that, um, that they're living. So uh, now, trust me, up. my daughter goes. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, my daughter goes to the University of Kentucky, and she is a sophomore. We have actually visited her, and uh, for Parents Weekend, this was the for her first year. She's like, "Mom, let, we're going to go to some some frat parties," and I was like, "Okay, that sounds Ooh. like fun." So right. we we go to these frat parties, and the house was exactly like what I pictured in Animal House. I mean, it was. I mean, again, kegs, beer cans, you of name course. it, everywhere. However, what we are buying. I mean, we're buying class A properties, 252 beds, 126 yeah. beds. So it's a, it's a different kind of asset than what most people actually visualize. No, it is. I think I, I was just going to draw a parallel for people, right? So I think if you buy a class D property in apartments, it attracts a different kind 
of habitants and even if that even if even if the demographic is different the way the way the property is is the way the property is going to be returned to you if it's in a crappy shape sure. that's is going to be returned to you in a crappy shape if it's a luxury apartment luxury mm-hmm. living people just treat it just inherently you don't want to kill it now there may be a bad bad egg everywhere right and we're not talking about those those few exceptions Absolutely. because they can happen everywhere but i think we're, and as in generalities the nicer the place the better care the the residents uh, for that place is going to take care of that so with that said, I know you also have a very Absolutely. interesting project in Antigua. Tell us about that. Yes, 74 Key Hotel in Antigua. We get my husband and I often get the question asked, "Why Antigua?" First off, this was brought to us as an off-market opportunity. Mm-hmm. Current owners, they've owned it for numerous years, but they are tired. Um they they managed to, you know, get to the other side of COVID. One of the owners is in his 80s. She is in, I think it's mid 70s, if I'm not mistaken. Well, they are a couple. They're not married. They just want to retire. They want to enjoy yeah. life. They have a place in Miami and they're originally from Italy and they have a place there. So they just want to enjoy time now. And that's where we've stepped in. We, we just absolutely love this property. It's It's got so many, it has so much opportunity. Take it from a three star to maybe a three and a half, four star. And that's what we plan to do. It's, and we do have some seller finance with it, which is a beautiful thing, especially in in right now with what's going on, it's it's harder to raise capital from investors. So with that seller financing, it's going to make it uh, much easier. However, we've always just envisioned living somewhere south and enjoying our time. So my husband and I, we plan to you know go back and forth between this property. There's there's more opportunity on this particular island for us to actually build a small maybe plant a flag so to speak of of several boutique type hotels mm-hmm. within this area, and it's. It's just a hugely attractive area to many Europeans, a lot of Canadians. And what we're going to work to do is actually get more of the U.S. market down there. That, that's amazing. So, Beth, how is that asset class? I know we talked about three different asset classes right now, or maybe four. Because we talked about outdoor living. We talked about maybe five. We talked about single family rehab and all that good stuff. We <laughs> talked about multifamily. We talked about student housing. We're now talking about hotels. So what's the common theme from your, for your investment thesis that sort of draws the same thread across all these things? Because you're not just jumping from one to another just because, just because you want to. It's because you're, I'm assuming there's a, there's a general thesis that is sometimes more true for one asset class than the other because the time of the, why you didn't do hotel 10 years ago could be very different than why you're doing hotels right now. So help me paint a picture of why hotels now and then how does that justify the investment thesis you have? Of course, an opportunity was presented to you, as you said. It's an off-market deal, so the numbers may work very good. But why hotels? I, I think I have an affinity for hospitality ever since that that time in my early 20s when the hotel manager that I was working for mm. with the catering operation, he actually gave me a free reign to say, run this right. hotel for me when I'm not here. So I, I love people. And I love pleasing people and I'm like pleasing people to a fault. And sometimes that gets me into trouble, but I have been in and out of the restaurant business for a long time. I think just a lot of my skills have translated over time, just even through my fitness studio, my catering business that I had. So, you know, hotels, why now post COVID there's, there's good deals out there. You have a lot of tired owners who really want to move on from their properties, especially in the Caribbean. Uh, That's number one. Number two, people are traveling traveling more. And, you know, now that we've sort of changed behavior, so to speak, with the way we operate, we can do so much more remotely. You're seeing that 
you know, nomadic kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, you're seeing just a lot of that where, you know, people can just pick up and they can go and they can stay at a, a hotel, an Airbnb in Mexico, in Tulum, in Wyoming, or, you know, wherever it is, right. and and just spend a month and enjoy and still be able to to work. So as a result, um, you know, this, this particular hotel has been, you know, busier than it was pre-COVID. Uh, it's generating some amazing cash flow, more so than actually a multifamily property could generate in a year's time. So that's very attractive. We can definitely provide some lucrative returns to our investors. And I think, you know, I, I think my husband and I are just really at a point where, you know, with our, our one and only daughter actually being out of the house, we're finding that we have some time to be able yeah. to immerse ourselves in something like this and and pivot from, you know, the outdoor living construction and and wind that down and just go to the next phase of life. Love that. Love that, Beth. So Beth, as you as you're talking to the investors right now on your end, when you're raising capital for for your projects or for the other projects that you're involved in, what's the pushback that you're feeling right now? What is the is it fear? Is it greed? Is it concern? What's the emotion that keeps coming out? Are you able to articulate that? Sure. I think there is, there's definitely some fear. And I think a lot of it is contingent upon the investment that's being presented to them. For instance, we've had some awesome opportunities in which we have been assuming debt at very low rates, like 3.62, 4.38. And when investors see that, and, and that assumption is for another, you know, seven years or so, they feel a lot more safe about, you know, putting their money yeah. into something that that rate is not going to be changing. However, when you are looking at an opportunity now where maybe there's some short term debt on it, and then you know, you know, there might have to be a refinance of some sort in, you know, maybe a year, two years, you know, there's a big question mark as to where those rates are really going to be at that particular point in time. And none of us have a crystal ball, right? I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not even sure that the feds necessarily know what it's going to look like Nobody two years knows, from yeah. now. So yeah, it's, it's just a big, it's a, it's a guessing game. So I think that's where investors get become a little weary as to like, hey, how can you project these returns when we don't really know, you know, what the future is going to hold? So, so they want to see, you know, again, that that conservative underwriting, they, they want to see that that debt at a low rate. I think anytime there is an assumption that 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 can be taken over, I think that's that's helpful. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've spoken with a lot of investors, especially over the last couple of months, as I've been raising for several different projects. And and there's just been a wide variety. Some of it's been timing, you know, I had one investor, who was advised by his financial planner to not pull any money out in order to invest in something because his money wasn't really really doing well where it currently was sitting. So mm. to, to not pull it out until it bounced back a little bit more. Yeah, so it's hard. It's it's really hard at this point. I think it's it's the hardest that I've ever seen it in in the several years that I've been raising capital. You know, you, you have to have really a home run of a deal for investors to to want to yeah. come in at this point. I think at this point what I'm realizing is that it's really not about the deal has to really, really make sense. Because I think a lot of people jump mm -hmm. into the deals just because of the excitement. But now people are, sure. which is a good thing. And I don't know why they didn't do it before. They're putting a lot more value in the due diligence, in their own due diligence and in mm -hmm. the capital raiser or the operator's uh, due diligence of the asset itself. So I think, I, think, I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's just that we're not, we're used to raising $10 million in 24 hours. Now it's taking 
months, if not weeks. So that seems like as a as a big pushback. But I don't think it's a it's a pushback. I think it's really that's the norm, right? If people are writing 50k, 100k checks in the cap in that capacity, there's something wrong. They need to think about. It. They need to make sure they are paying attention to the numbers. They're asking questions instead of saying within 24 hours we're closed. All right, the, the pressure they felt before was much intense. I'm always telling people as actually that's a this is a perfect environment to invest in because. You yourself are going to do more due diligence, and due diligence, and I'm going to learn more than two months ago or two years ago when you don't even have the time to do the due diligence because somebody else will put the money if you don't. So you felt pressured, right? What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that, Beth? Well, I, I absolutely agree, and and that's what we have definitely seen is is longer times in between the yeses coming from investors. So whereas a yes. Prime example is I had one investor of mine that invested into a particular deal and, and that took a matter of three days for him to say yes. That was two yeah. years ago. And now it's it's more like three weeks. Three weeks. If they, <laughs> or something if like they that. Don't ghost you know, you. It, it's just long. If they don't, if, if they don't ghost yeah. you anymore, so like, oh I don't want to talk to Beth Socket. Right? I'm done. Right. No, I love that, Beth. And I, I think, you know, yeah. And one thing I will say too is, is you know, a lot of times investors, you know, place a, a huge emphasis on the metrics. And, and while that's important, and I totally agree, I, I also think it's very important to actually look at the operators. Who is operating? What yeah. What's their track record? What Please. kind of experience do they have? And especially that's one thing that we've been scrutinized highly for with the student housing is what's your track record? Well, luckily yeah. we have someone who was with Landmark Properties for 17 years. And as a result, you know, that's Landmark is one of the largest student housing operators in the country. So when you have that kind of track record, it definitely helps. But, you know, we've, we've seen where operators have gotten themselves into hot water. And especially over the course of the last right. six months, there's been several stories that have come out. And I think that's that's also causing investors to pause a bit and and think twice about, okay, who are these people? What do I know about them? How can I get to know them better? And that's where we're seeing, you know, multiple, multiple Zoom calls or, or Teams, you know, calls, you know, video calls, I should say, just with, you know, an investor wanting to feel more comfortable with who they're investing with. Right, right, right. No, I, I think that this is this is all all makes sense, and I don't think you're telling us anything that we've we haven't talked in the previous. It's just always good to hear again and again that it's not all doom and gloom. I think there's always opportunities to make money and invest in the deals. That you have to do a much more thorough due diligence, not just on the deal, but also on the operator. And just to give context to people, that's that in good or bad times, you always need to do that. Because this time of today, mm -hmm. the tumultuous time of today is eventually going to pass. All of us have short-term memory and we're going to forget it. That I was taking three <laughs> months to invest $100,000. Now the time has again come where I need to make a decision in 24 hours, right? So you just got to make sure that the, your own personal investment philosophy should be thorough and sh you shouldn't be changing it just because the market has changed. Now you may change a few parameters in there, but it should be, there shouldn't be a drastic change. Right. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit, period. Because right. I'm pretty sure most of you, most of the investors who have been burned, they're probably thinking, I wish I didn't invest in that deal. I wish oh, I asked these definitely. questions or I asked this. Uh, and again, no matter how many questions you ask, it is what it is. So I wouldn't look back at that. I think I would right. say is that at this point, you, the only way to do it is think forward. And uh, stuff mm -hmm. that Beth has talked about, things that I talk to you about, things that other guests are talking about, which is all similar themes, that uh, these are <laughs> good things to worry about. And it's a, it's actually a blessing. So um, instead of 
instead of sitting tight and just putting money in treasuries, because you all know with treasuries is good for 5% or 5.3%, but it's not going to last for too long. And, and you're not playing in the upside. So you have to really start thinking about where you're putting your money in. With that said, Beth, and I think you and I can talk at length for this because we're all dealing with the similar challenges and, and, sure. and similar sort of asset classes and stuff. But let's shift gears into, we're coming towards the end of our show here, Beth. What's, there is a 20-year-old Beth here somewhere listening to the show. What's one insight you can share with that 20-year-old Beth to, to change their trajectory of migration into wealth? Start now with investing in real estate. I, I would say learn, educate yourself. And, and you know, I, I kick myself. When I look back um, in my 20s, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have definitely started. And, and there's ways to do it. And I know, and it's interesting, I have a TikTok account and I'm always talking with a lot of younger individuals who are asking me, how do I get started? How do I get started? And they're generally in their early 20s. I know that oftentimes they don't necessarily have maybe the the capital to make it happen. They definitely, they have the energy yeah. and, and they have, they can absorb knowledge so much quicker than what, what I'm capable of doing. And, you know, they're, they're very savvy with things like, you know, with apps and, and, you know, chat be, GPT now is, is just growing so, so quickly and, and whatnot. So what I'm, basically would want to tell a 20 something year old, or if it was me is to like learn, use whatever free time that you have. If it's, if you're on a college campus and you're walking to class or, or you've got some spare time, you know, go on YouTube, start checking out yeah. videos, go on TikTok, you know, read whatever you can do, start to educate yourself and then figure out how you can actually get into real estate because there are ways of actually doing it with little to no money and and there's opportunities and start to build even if it's just a small portfolio even if it's a duplex or if you house hack you know what whatever find somebody find an investor partner that maybe wants to take a chance on you that's how i got started is someone you know we had the the wherewithal to be able to renovate houses and we had an investor that had the down money and and so we just we made that work and between the yeah. two of us that's that's how we started and 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 there's so there are ways and i think a lot of it too is not just education but you have to go meet people right so if it's at your local ria if it's at real estate meetups you know start attending those start surrounding yourself with people who actually want to go in the same direction that you do because there's enough 20 something year olds out there that want this for themselves that want to create that generational wealth and that actually want to probably be retired by the time they're 40 and and they can make it happen Happen. But starting young is is just where it's at. Love that, Beth. Beth, next question. We're taking a little bit of higher perspective here. Where do you feel humanity as a whole should migrate towards in the next few decades? That's a tough question. Well, I wish we were just more of a kind society, kind to to everyone, kind to anyone we we see filling up our gas tank. If it's at the grocery store, if it's at an event, a smile goes a long way. Understanding that on the other side of that, that someone else's life, we never have full access to. So we can never fully judge that person or we, nor should we ever be judging them in the first place. But, but we, we tend to be a very divisive society right now, very judgmental. I would just love to see more kindness shown to one another because I think it could actually go a long way. More patience and more just understanding of each other's needs. You know, just really listening. I, I tell you, if we could just listen, listen with an open mind, actually yeah. hear and respect everyone else's opinions, you know, whether or not you agree or disagree, that would that would just really move 
really move us as humans, you know, to a higher level. And, and I would love to see that more. You know, it's something I try and work on daily. I have a, a journal that I write down, you know, things that, you know, went well today, things that didn't and, and how yeah. can I improve myself? And, you know, I'm, I'm always continually writing down, like, you know, if I, you know, sometimes you get frustrated when you're on the phone with a customer service person and, and you take it out on them, right? It's never their fault. Oh, it just, it seems yeah. like it's easier to take it out on them, right? So if, if, if that happens to me, I'm always, you know, making note of it. Okay, Beth, remember the next time. This is what you need to do. And I think it's just improving ourselves daily as human beings to just be a better person all the way around. And and that's not hard to do. It maybe it is hard and it's work. And and that's what sometimes not everybody wants to put the work in. Yeah, Beth, such a beautiful answer. Thank you again for sharing that. You've been a delight to talk to. I think you've shared a lot of insights. I've learned a lot. Some of my beliefs have been validated. Some have been refuted. So it's always good to have other guests like yourselves. Where can people learn more about you, the work you're doing, the projects you have? Absolutely. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Investing with Beth. My email address is Beth at Lifestyle Equities Group. Dot com. You can always shoot me a text, 513-470-1078. Um, you can find me on Facebook under The Beth Underhill. Awesome. Well, but thank you again for uh, being on the show and sharing your time with us. Appreciate it. For all the listeners, if you're listening to this part, thank you for staying till the end. We appreciate it. Without your support, the show would not exist. And without you, actually, there's no reason to do the show anyways. So we appreciate you uh, tuning in and staying, hopefully, things that Beth and I were talking about is going to push you into some positive action. That's our goal. It's not just about learning. Remember, it's all about doing. So go invest, go learn, go do whatever you need to do, but make sure you take an action. With that note, thank you again. And I'm pretty sure you'll be back as a guest at some point. Thank you. Great. I'd love to come back. Thank you. Beth, hold on one second. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.